This is a trigger warning from the legal department. Just reminding you that this shit is pretty heavy. And that's okay. Take a deep breath. Don't forget to hydrate. Wash your fucking hands. Hello, humans. Welcome back for another installment of the Revenue Reel Hotline. You guys are in for a treat today. We've got the great Roderick R.J. Jefferson on here. R.J., I mean, aside from being a amazing human being who is also a mentor, R.J. is the, currently the VP of Field Enablement at Netscope, and this is a guy that's been category-defining um, <laughs> by any definition of the word for 24 years now, and I'm just at the forefront of all things sales enablement, and so anybody that's curious about... Uh, the business of sales or how we came to be at this point or maybe what goes on behind the scenes. Um, this is absolutely a conversation for you. We talk sales enablement. We talk the art and science of all things. We talk interdepartmental alignment, aka collaboration. We talk about business problems, both the root cause and the symptoms, and what the difference are or what the difference is. We talk about manager skill development. We talk about flipping the script and instead of building high potential programs, building high potential leaders. We talk the power of RJ's question: Do you want me to listen? Do you want me to coach? Or do you want me to fix? We talk shiny tool syndrome and the cost of inaction and how everything starts and end, ends with the buyer's journey. We talk RJ's new book, Sales Enablement 3.0. And we talk about how everything changes when we stop teaching people how to sell and teach sellers how to help. And really though, we talk human. And there's nobody that I, no one that I enjoy talking human with more them with RJ and I'm excited for you guys to hear the conversation like really really excited if anybody has any thoughts questions comments or just wants to call BS on any aspect by all means hit us up on the hotline at 646-470-0248 that is 646-470-0248 if you like what you're hearing do tell a friend I take that as the highest compliment and with that I'm Amy Rahubchik this is the Revenue Real Hotline, and enjoy. Oh my gosh. Roderick R.J. Jefferson, welcome to the Revenue Real Hotline. Honored to be here. <laughs> are you are you at Hogwarts? Like, please, is that what's happening right now? No, it's actually the library at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. Really? Really? Absolutely gorgeous place. Gosh, and so, like, listeners, you like, I, I almost want to see a like a. <laughs> I know that RJ is a man of integrity multiplied by twenty thousand, but part of me is like, it is so beautiful what I'm looking at behind this fan that I, I almost think that uh, it's like a backdrop. But that is, it's beautiful. Okay, Roderick, I, I don't think I've ever looked forward to a hotline conversation more than this one. I'm honored. I'm ready to dive in with you. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I know, you know, listeners, RJ is a, is a mentor of mine. Like I, 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 I don't even have words. You just heard the intro. Uh, so, you know, hopefully I came up with some words at some point. Well, I know I will, but so there's that. Okay. So Roderick, I just listened to your call or your made it conversation with Shelton. Just so you know, so that's where my headspace <laughs> is. Okay. And obviously, as you know, I, I ordered the, the sales enablement 3.0 in pre-order and you. read it multiple times, as you know, and rock my hope is not a strategy tote bag as well. <laughs> um, and so, but, and so like real quickly, the target audience, as you know, is the experienced tech seller, the theme of the show, uncomfortable conversations and sales. Love it. I love getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know oh, me. Man. I, you, yeah. I, you know how, well, <laughs> I, I really didn't have a choice on that one because it started so young at the kitchen table. When, when you're raised by a sales leader, you know, that's, that's kind of hot wired into the DNA there. But anyway, I, I, 
I saved the last 10 minutes for the, the two final questions. And I wrote down a bunch of things that we could talk about. And so generally I read that list back and then you, you can choose where you want us to begin. And I'm delighted to do that, but also like, I guess I'm, I'm, I, before I, I create any biases about what we can or, or should talk about, like, have you, have you thought about um, what you want to cover or what you want to talk about on the show? Like, yeah, there you a, know, yeah. There's, there's a few things. Okay. One is let's clear up what sales enablement means and how we got to where we are today, similar to why I wrote the book and I'm, I'm honored and humbled to say as the guy that coined the phrase sales enablement, I hope that I know a little bit about it, right? But you know how I feel about hope. So yeah, there's a couple of things to talk about there. Um, I also would love to talk about how that fits into the difference between training and enablement when it comes to not just individual contributors, but also leaders. And then how are we that centralized communication center and hub, if you will, across all the lines of business? What's the true value of enablement? And then finally, if we have time to get to it, metrics. Look, numbers lie and so do people. Metrics don't. And so we've got to make sure that we understand how do we validate what we're doing back to not just the sales leaders, but across the entire go-to-market strategy. Excellent. Uh Listeners, there's lots of people out there that talk about the origins of sales enablement and how they were the one. There's, I have investigated this one deeply, and I I can confidently say that we have found the the true source. Um, and I know, obviously, all big things that happen, you know, there are groups of people, but this is this is it. Okay, perfect. So, Roderick, I call it um, define what sales enablement is the history, where it came from, the value that it's delivered. You said something about how, about training. So I would imagine, um, you know, just reframing how this is not just a sexy rebrand of the same old, same old sales trainer, which by the way, friends, was a training, sales training. It was a $20 billion industry last year and it mostly doesn't work. So let's talk about that waste. Um, and thank, thankfully there are people like RJ that are writing books about how to, uh, make things better across the board. And then the last one is metrics. So, you know, I don't think we've ever talked about this RJ, but my favorite metric is the learning indicator. Just so you know, if it like, okay. if, and when we get to that one, like that is, that's where it's at for me because my job is not done until whatever new skilled piece of knowledge, whether it's business acumen, market, market industry, you know, product tech tool, if my job is not done until the information has been retained at 80% across the board. And so, um, we agree know, on that one, just say so like learning it together. Like that's, that's, that's where I'm coming in strong. And I know you have a great chapter on that one. So, and I, but I don't think we've ever talked about it. So now that if we do, and when we get there, um, okay. Can I add one last thing The the project charters and the business case? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, and, and I, I was going to weave that in because yeah, yeah, that's yeah. critical in regards to who we are, what we do and equally as important, what we don't do. And I don't mean this school? isn't my job, but the actual value of what we bring to the table as enablement practitioners versus theorists. Mm-hmm. Excellent. No, I, and you know, and I'll even take it a step further, like the idea. So I learned about project charters um, through my process improvement training or process design stuff. And so like have the, the step, and I know that you had a thriving consulting practice in between the badass career trajectory. It was like, I, I just heard the first black owned consulting company to complete a project with American Express in 150 years. Like that is okay. correct. Yeah. That's mind boggling. Right. Yeah. So I know First, you- that it took that long and second <laughs> that we were actually the ones to break that glass. I'm just incredibly honored by. It. Oh my gosh. Listeners, just I'm I, I'm sure I'm gonna say this in the intro, but the places where Roderick has worked and built out and designed sales enablement programs and teams mm-hmm. and systems. Oh my gosh, over a long career, we're talking about Siebel Systems Network, Appliance, Business Objects, HP, eBay, P- PayPal, Oracle, Salesforce, and finally Marketo. So just so, just so we we know who we're speaking with. Okay, Roderick, so here's what I wrote down. I can't leave out the current employer. Oh my goodness oh, gracious, Netscope, Netscope, <laughs> Netscope. Um, and if anyone's interested in learning more about how 
RJ made these baller decisions by, you know, investigating what's the next hot market. The episode on made it will be included in the show notes. Okay. RJ. So I wrote down, um, playing chess, right? Not checkers. Okay. So yeah. I use that analogy all the time and, and think in game theory. And I don't, I've never heard, we've never said any, not. And so to hear you say, use that exact analogy, right? Just the, how to think strategically, um, the perpetual learner, right? I loved when you did a shout out on for consultants, um, to go and talk to other consultants, right? So I, I consulted for a couple of years. And so mm -hmm. I like that one. You spoke to my heart. Um, obviously the Amex thing and then everything about the book and all the things. Okay. So, but I like your list better, interestingly enough. So let's, do you want to, why don't we start with define what sales enablement is and what it is not? I, absolutely. And it shifted. And now if you would have asked me pre COVID, I would have said sales enablement was about breaking the complexity of sales into practical ideas through scalable and repeatable practices that ultimately lead to accelerated speed to revenue, increased seller productivity, and then creating customers for life through increased revenue, right? The whole world has shifted. I look at it very differently now, and that's where I come up with the philosophy of sales enablement 3.0. And that to me is really more about making sure that one, we help our customers maintain the customers they have. We help them to mitigate risk. We help them to certainly increase productivity and profit but it's really more about helping now and less about selling. And so when we get to that, that piece and you can get to a level where you can say, hmm, have I reached it? Something I keep in mind is the, the philosophy of sales enablement and now sales enablement 3.0 is both an art and a science. I believe that there are no magical bullets and there's certainly not a single approach that will guarantee your success. However, there is a formula just like any other successful process, program, or tool that requires a combination of practical application, trial and error, a mix of conversations with sales leaders and other leaders internally to understand their wants, their needs, and their expectations that always tie back to revenue impacting metrics. That's where we are now with enablement. We are no longer, we should no longer be viewed as the fixers of broken people and broken things, right? but more as partners across the lines of business and also a part of the go-to-market strategy that acts as the conductor of an orchestra. Mm. And I know it's a long-winded, but in pieces, I give it to it in, in a simple analogy. Think about an orchestra, right? As I said in the book, mm. you've got woodwinds, strings, percussion. You've got all of these instruments trying to play the same song in the right notes, but sometimes they're out of tune, out of phase, and they're not coordinated. Well, the same thing happens inside of a business. You've got all these lines of business, marketing, product marketing, engineering, HR, sales, all trying to do the right thing for the prospect or the customer. But the problem is sometimes we're out of tune and we're out of step until in both situations, one person or organization, which I believe is enablement, whether you're looking at revenue enablement, field enablement, sales enablement, we can get to that part later. But enablement steps up and taps the stand and all of that noise and chaos suddenly becomes a beautiful sheet of music. That's what we do in enablement at our core. Hmm. Okay. So I support listeners. I support every word that RJ just said, like 100%, like zero, zero questions asked. I am going to not push back, but I'm going to dig into a couple of the, the themes that were brought up, but just know that... <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So RJ, I, my process design training ha, is all about, right. Focusing on what the true problem is, right. Differentiating between the, the symptoms, right. Or the issues created from a root cause problem. And one of the things that like one of, I, one of my favorite books that HBR put out last year is called What's Your Problem? And it is, it's very clear and obvious to me 
as someone that spent many years doing this, right? Just dissussing out glucose problems, right? Issue spotting, diagramming, all that shit and measuring the process in its current state, right? And so, and also after having done that or facilitated, you know, large teams, right? With project team and steering committees, I know what the absence of that due diligence also looks like. And so that without having truly solidified what the problem is, gotten an understanding of it from different perspectives, right? All the different stakeholders and get bringing everyone to the table to align around what we're solving for and how we're going to measure success. Like when those things don't happen, the chances of having, you know, thrown a, a dart at the wall and hit the root cause problem and, you know, fix, it's our, our zero. I agree a hundred percent, hundred percent. And that's so, why I look at enablement this way in line with what you're saying. I don't believe that enablement is about giving all the right answers. I believe enablement most of the time is about asking the right questions. Agreed. Right. So from a, a discovery and qualification perspective, I can't diagnose your pain if I don't truly understand the, to your point, the root cause of your pain. And then when we get to that, I can say, is it aspirin? Is it Vicodin? Is it Valium? Is it um, a, a stronger med that you need, right? Or is it an extraction? Mm -hmm. And without getting to the root cause, you're just talking about the symptoms. Exactly. And solving for the symptoms. And this is, and it, you know, to take this a step further, and then I'm going to bring it to the history, RJ, because when you said that like it's sales enablement is helping and less about selling, like when I, I want to dig into, well, one, I don't think that zero sum. I think that helping sellers is, I, I mean, I think they're both. Now the question is, why weren't we helping sellers before this? And, or more interestingly, when sellers win, everyone wins. And so Agreed. why, why was the collaboration or the across different, like why does customer success and sales bicker and argue over the, who's going to own the upselling of the client base without, you know, in many instances, just as one example. So why is, why are we still referring to a team of people as non-tech humans, right? By something that they are not, right? Even so little things like that. And so I almost, I want to, I want to go there. Can, but can I, will, I address that question? Cause I yeah, think I, I have an answer from my perspective. I would love to hear it, RJ. For, for the history of companies, regardless of, of space that you're in, the, the theory of the philosophy, as far as I've seen in my 25 years of um, doing this, mm -hmm. is quite simple. The, f the further you get away from the sun, the colder it gets. Guess who's the sun? It's always sales been leaders. sales. I, you know what, RJ, how many sales leaders do you know that are responsible for their P&L? Very few. And that's why I didn't say sales leaders. I mean, sales as a function. That's where the problem started. We put them on this pedestal above all, but they can't be successful without the sum of all parts. How, but, but again, though, having a basic understanding of, of like business acumen, mm -hmm. the difference between, right. So top line revenue is critical, right? It is very important. Certainly. Obviously. So is profitability. And part of managing the profitability is having an ability to measure effectiveness and efficiency gains by tightening things up. And so like, I can't tell, I've lost count the number of times that like I've seen eyes glaze over at the sale. So I differentiate between sales leader and sales boss, eyes glaze over when talking numbers about a business case or about effectiveness and how, where there are um, massive opportunities to, tighten up the process, which would then yield, you know, far more revenue for, with the, and, and, and again, the eyes glaze over. So again, that's yeah. to me a, a part of the root cause problem. The other is we've gone a long time in tech sales in particular, thinking and talking and treating the field like cogs in an industrial wheel or line items in a spreadsheet. And Agreed. We, we like the, the bodies that are, we burn through top performers and underperformers alike just are dropping all around us. And for at no point have we stopped to said, why, why are, why are we, why are these, why are these dead bodies here? Why do we keep piling? And we could call it dead bodies or we can call it an obscene attrition rate. Well, it's both right. And, and let's go back to re root cause again, because I, I love that approach, right? The root cause starts with a couple of things. One, 
that there's a difference between sales managers and sales leaders. What you're talking about is a true sales leader that can look at their business holistically from a financial perspective, from a human perspective, from an EQ perspective, and then from a numbers perspective. A sales manager, not so much. And we've created the root cause, I believe, is we've created these sales managers by doing this. You have a rock star rep. You promote them to sales manager, but you never actually teach them how to lead. There's no these people yeah, have yeah. only managed their patch. And so they're trying to manage their team the same way. They've never had to hire and fire. They've never had difficult conversations. Hell, they've never even run a team meeting, but yet you expect them to be effective? No. How about we step back from that and say, first of all, that creates two problems. One, you create a micromanager and never have I heard that term being used in a positive manner. And secondly, you've taken a rock star out of a patch and that patch is now vulnerable to your competition. So what if we flip that? What if we actually looked at this, not just from the process of building high potential programs, but what if we started to build high potential leaders and gave them an opportunity early on to not just manage, but actually to oversee maybe a smaller portion of a team to be a part of some decisions around what does it mean to hire? What does it mean to actually have to put folks on pips? What do those conversations look like? What does it look like to actually look at your overall holistic view of, again, financials, people, numbers, et cetera. But instead, we go to the manager piece. The yeah. other root cause to this, I believe, is, and I talk about it in the book, when we bring a BDR on, you think about where they've been if this is their first true corporate job. Mm -hmm. They've been in school for four or six years, depending upon MBA, et cetera, right? And what they've had that whole time is a schedule. We call it a syllabi, but it's a schedule of what you're going to take in what order across your freshman through your senior into your MBA years. Why wouldn't we take that same approach with our BDRs and SDRs when they come in? But no, we throw them in the deep end of the pool and assume that they're going to know how to swim. Build your programs for people. Don't try and shoehorn people into your programs. Okay. So much there. Um, real quick, just to, for, for listener friends, like I, when I define sales enablement, I always, I like to throw in the three buckets that I would consider, uh, to be under the scope of, of the function. The first is, uh, training, right. And this is for skill development and this is for knowledge for, or, you know, maybe tools or product launches or whatever, but training, then there is the, um, content. And content is one of those fuzzy words that means like very different things to different people. There's internal content, right? Playbooks. I call them style guides. It's a branded, you know, I think the word playbook is just so boring. So style guides, how to execute with style. Um, then there's the external content as well that, you know, is, you know, up for debate and the content tools that can, whatever, I like seismic, right? I'm a big fan of seismic. Anyway, then the third, of course is coaching. And I'm not just talking about coaching individuals. I'm talking about coaching a team as well. And RJ, to your point, I've tried to pitch creating a onboarding program for new managers to learn how to coach, mm -hmm. not just individuals, but a team, right? So like when I think of, uh, it's very easy to, to have competition turn toxic, right? When we use dashboards really aggressively or not enough messaging about how this is a team sport or maybe the comp plans at the manager level of like encourage right this behavior of what well, my team got it we got ours but we're not going to help anybody else competition so, does drive behavior mm, it's so funny how that happens the incentives and but like there's it's funny rj in the scott lee's episode he shared how he changed he, he called it a socialist comp plan where he made one number for all the managers and so it was like um, it was, it was very interesting. I didn't, I didn't, if any, if you know of anyone else that has done that or is doing that, that's a big deal. Now that said, I've tried to, to pitch creating a, a, a manager onboarding or a manager coaching development or a leadership development program, mm -hmm. the creation of twice. And it, so there's that. And then also, and I'm, th I'm thinking of Project Oxygen, right? For anybody that needs any details or information on making a business case to do this internally, Google put together all the data for you. It's called Project Oxygen. I will link to it in the show notes. Um, there are 10 factors that make up for a, like a productive and successful 
uh, team leader, right? Also known as a manager, something that Google was very interested in investigating. One of the 10 is technical acumen, right? Having the skills to do the job. Like, you know, if you're a good seller, then you become, you know, then, then we think that you're able to be at whatever. So it is on there, but it's very low on the list. And RJ, like, so I'll go even go back to like, why? Well, there's two things. Why haven't we stopped ourselves sooner as a profession, right? I, and I can think of the filter bubble, right? It's been a long time going where no one has stopped. To, we're, we're very happy to blame sellers. We're very happy to point at how sellers hop around, but nobody talks about how 50% of sellers right now, or excuse me, 51% of sellers right now make their quota. And as a- man, number's up. From when? Um, from earlier numbers that I've seen where it was more in the 40s than even the 50s. Yeah. So it's funny that you say this. So my number is coming from Ryan Walsh and Repu. Okay. Um, and and he thinks it's lower. And Marcus yeah. Chan had some whatever. And so I I don't know. Like, there's a lot of things to say. I'm not re ready to sign off on the fact that it's up because I have I have seen very little things that- When I talk to my peers in uh -huh. enablement, I don't hear numbers in the 50s. I'm still hearing- quota attainment in the forties. Yeah. Right. And, and I think that that's what's going on to answer your question now, mm -hmm. why um, it's quite simple. And that is over the last 25 years where I've been doing sales training, enabling effectiveness, whatever you want to call it at the moment, the tools have advanced. The technology has advanced, but the way that we approach sales enablement hasn't really changed in the last 20 years. And it's quite simple. It's because we as an enablement organization of practitioners still have not come to a point where we've gotten comfortable with being uncomfortable. We're still doing things, dare I say it, the way that we've always done it because it's worked. Well, guess what? The world has shifted. Everything has changed and there is no next normal. There is not, excuse me, there's no new normal because here's why. When you talk about next normal that infers that something that we can lean upon that's happened before what we're going into is a brand new normal these are things that we've never seen before this is approaches to selling this is methodology this is a level of humanity and eq think about even selling how personalized it's truly become we're inviting each other into our homes now whereby before that wasn't even thought about mm -hmm. we were out on the golf course we were out having happy hour we we're out meeting with our prospect now it's you're in my home i'm in your home there's never been a time where selling with humanity, EQ and empathy and leading with those has meant more than it does today. And that's where enablement has to shift. You've got to get away from the way we've always done things. Otherwise we are destined to repeat the same problems and we will forever be stuck in that fixers of broken things and broken people box. I would also add that there's never been a better time to do so. Like now is the time because the cracks and I, you know what, RJ, like, I don't even, I don't just differentiate as much before between sales enablement and sales leadership or sales bosses that are setting the stage in, in, and what I mean by that is I agree that there, there's not been a lot of changes to the way that things are done, like the business of sales in 20 years, but in many ways, right? Even with the idea of making a business case, it is the sales boss, right? That VP of sales that is signing off or not signing off. And like, you're, you're the stuff of dreams in that. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm like a sponge trying to learn as much as I can from you about like, you know, selling internally and, and, you know, getting that stakeholder buy-in. And I know that, that you've had exquisite experiences because you've, you've worked on yourself. However, I don't see, I'm with you on sales enablement, needing to shift and grow backbone and or right, take advantage of this time, uh, of this moment in time that will never come again in our lifetimes. It will never be better and easier and you know more effective to approach like true change, fundamental change, systematic change than it is right now, right now. However, I don't, I don't think that it's been, I don't know, I guess it's a mix of both and a filter bubble around both and like group think on both sides of the house. Well, I think that's part of it. I think there's another component and that is at least for 
the the seasoned practitioners, mm-hmm. we are now being woven into the fabric of the company and a part of the go to market strategy in a way that we never were before. And let me give you an example. Here at Netscope, enablement for the first time, I think in the history of the company, we are one of the top three objectives for our CEO and our president. It's now a go-to-market strategy. So it's now being pushed downward from the highest level. Mm -hmm. This is not me, the VP of field enablement saying, hey, this is what we're going to go and do. This is our e-staff saying, in order for us to be successful, there's no way we can't do this. We have to. And look, I'm not foolish enough to believe that enablement is what keeps the doors open. All right. But I do believe that poor or lack thereof is what will guarantee your doors will close. So we've got to move up higher in, in the food chain. When the thing that the line in your book, RJ, that still gives me chills. <laughs> and I'm, I, I swear to God, I'm going to write a blurb for you. Um, but the line is that you said that sales enablement needs to be not just the voice of the customer internally, but the voice of the field. And Absolutely. that I think has been one of the massive things that's been missing. And so it was like, I, I like fell in love with, with that line and I fell in love with that mission. And I wanna make, I wanna pull that front and center because we, and it, so it's a perfect tie into your value component. The ch- when the opposite of not having a, the voice of the sellers or the voice of the field or the voice of the customer represented looks and feels like a lot of assumptions that have been made about what the field needs or wants without ever having to stop and ask them, hey, is this case study? Is this, is this even a thing? Have you heard this being a thing? Oh, oh, this new tool that we're going to manage what you do down to your day, the day and task without having read where, you know, any at one lick of modern research about where productivity and performance come from, cough, autonomy, cough, yeah. happiness, cough, creativity, you know, just, just yeah. to name a couple. Um, but that said, like we, we have, we have thought so poorly of the field or or, and I hear this often, sellers need to be fixed. They cannot manage their time. They cannot, um, like, mm, and that was the hardest, that was the (laughs) hardest part about switching to sales and the official sales enablement was hearing how poorly the talk was at the proverbial table. And I just, okay. So anyway, that said, when we think that way about sellers, Mm -hmm. Oh, we are not problem solvers. This is another big one. I was interviewing somewhere and I was like, this person had been uh, uh, in like adult learning in a different field and working with the tech teams and whatever. And I was like, this is awesome. Like you have all the, and now coming in to work with both, like what, what's your been, your experience been with, with, you know, the field versus whatever. And the answer that I got RJ was, oh, it's actually really, it's a lot harder. It's very difficult because, you know, when you're working with sellers, they are just not problem solvers. And I like, I remember keeping a, a poker face and this is going to be personal, like a peer that I worked with daily. And I just like, you know, smile, but like subtly closed my notebook. And it was just like, uh, okay, that is common. That is an end of conversation moment with me. <laughs> that really is because we, we don't have a job without them. And that's why in, in sales and 3.0, I focus on my three C's communication, collaboration and orchestration, right? My my three components. And why? You've got to be able to communicate or listen. And to me, communication is more, as I said earlier, about listening than it is about talking. So that communication piece, I'm listening to hear what's going on, not what the just the problems are, but the why behind how we got to where we are. Because people want to stick on the what. The collaboration, never build anything that you think your internal customer, and I don't call them stakeholders, because then you're betrothed to them but your internal customers or partners, however you want to look at it, you've got to give them what they're asking for. Otherwise they shut you down because ultimately enablement, we don't own the adoption, the execution and the positive modeling of our programs and processes, platforms and tools. Our internal customers do. So why would I give them a hammer when they ask for a screwdriver, right? What that says is you didn't listen to me. So instead, why don't you hear what I'm saying help me diagnose it, and then take your expertise around what's the modality and all the other things that we do, right? But at the end of the day, then you get to the orchestration, and that's what you're talking about, about being the, the voice of the customer and the voice of the field. 
I look at us and I call us the translators of dialects and languages. We've got to take the information out to the field and enablement folks. Let's get out of our lofty, um, comfortable offices, even virtually, and start jumping on some calls and finding out what's going on in the real world. One reason is I don't, I will not hire anyone on my team that has not carried a bag because they can't talk about how comfortable or uncomfortable shoes are, right? And so where this ties into the story is you go out and you listen. Then you come back and you say in product marketing, product management, HR, engineering, in speak to them. And you say, hey, you know what, product marketing, I have listened to 10 customers and we love the, the company pitch, but slide seven gets a little fuzzy. Can we either pull that out or smooth it? I go back to product management and say, I've had this request eight times for this. How can we get that moved up on the release cycle so we can get happy long-term customers? I go back to HR and I go back to sales and I say, look, while we've got our ICP, ideal customer or client profile, because there's not another enough acronyms, I might add another one in. No, it's so funny. What's, no, no, please. Thank you for what doing is, I'm what is on that our one too. IEP look like? <laughs> oh What's our God. ideal employee profile? Do we need a younger seller? Have we now transitioned from a quick sell into a more complex sale? And now are we transitioning into a larger big ticket relationship sell? Each one of those requires a different ideal employee profile. And then you get all of that information with them. And here's where the translator comes from. You translate everything they're going to share to the field back in sales speak, back in SE speak versus C, back into CSM speak that they're not only going to understand, but they're going to embrace and then engage and execute on. Hmm. That's why I like those style guides, how to execute with style. Um, okay. So that was beautiful. Like I, I, I need, like, I, I need a, I need like one of those clappy hands to be able to like, <laughs> this, like preach. <laughs> Thank you. RJ, that was amazing. Okay. So this also I, comes from being a, a bag carrier, right? Yeah. And go back to that point. Everyone on my team has carried a bag so they can talk about, look, Baby, I've landed whales, like... bluebirds have landed. I've lost at the 13th hour. I've sat on the last day of the month and quarter waiting for the DocuSign to come through. So I feel your pain as opposed to, well, tell me more about how it feels when that DocuSign doesn't come through. You're now viewed as a theorist versus a practitioner. Hmm. I, so there's a massive difference between, oh, this was uh, chief Chris, right. From Mountain View on his episode, we talked about this and I, I've, I, I, this, there's a massive difference between lived experience versus learned experience. And when you have not sold, when you have not carried a bag, when you have not lived what that feels like, I have not, it's, I don't, I'm, I don't think I've ever met someone that has not carried a bag that, um, yeah. And it's, it's funny, RJ, because I, when, when, when people come to me with career questions or advice on the sales enablement front, it's almost always one of the first things I said, like, have you carried a bag? Like, have you done, I, you yeah. know, it's, it's a credibility totally, thing. Yeah. Right? And like, you're going to go and stand in front of an audience and I'm talking mm -hmm. to a bunch of sales folks and sales leaders. The first thing I say out of my mouth is I'm not a trainer. I'm one of you. I've carried a bag. I've done blah, 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 blah. And what it does is first of all, it creates a, a level of commonality. Mm -hmm. But we both know that in sales, if you don't know the proverbial secret handshake of sales, you're not one of us. And if you're not one of us, you're on the outside of that wall. That's going to be hard. I'm not saying it's not that it's impossible, Agreed. but it's hard to scale that wall until they see you've taken taken strides to, as I said earlier, walk in their shoes. Look, think about this theorist versus practitioner. And, and I, I give a basketball analogy. Right. Oh, if a coach says, basketball team. We can play yeah. So a coach says, jump off your right Duke. leg, lift your left hand mm -hmm. and um, release the ball off your fingertips for left hand layup. And you go, okay, great coach. Show me how to do that. And that coach says, well, the manual says, if you jump off your right leg, you lift your left hand, you roll the ball up. You're looking at that coach and going, if you can't show me, how can I follow what you're saying? How can I trust you? How can I believe in you? How is there any credibility in what you're saying? As opposed to you're just giving me theory that's useless. Now I've lived this has a whole other level of credibility and commonality with sales folks. And, and we know that it is a secret society that you're either a part of, or you will be blocked out of until mm -hmm. you earn your right to get in. Yeah. And I want to add something to this because you were speaking about listening to sellers. So sales enablement friends, sales bosses, friends, sales leaders, all of it. We teach, right? When you 
are excelling in the field, you know how to listen. You know how to ask powerful questions in discovery, especially if you're selling category defining things or information. We know when it's not happening and we know what that means and looks like. That's also another reason why what is the outputs are just written off, right? Because it's yeah. We, we know how to do it. We know, we know how to do it so well that we can, the spotting of it is just, yeah. It sticks out like a sore thumb. Can like I have a, a, a really quick conversation sure. with my sales leaders? Uh -huh. Because as leaders, we are natural fixers. We, we humans. all are. Humans. Right? As humans. Yeah. But, but especially as, as leaders. That's part of what got us there is being able to, to solve those problems and fix. So let me talk directly to the sales leaders for a moment. Here's how I start, and, and Amy, you'll know where I'm going in a second. Here's how I start every one of my conversations with my team. Mm -hmm. It starts with a very simple three-part question. Do you want me to listen? Do you want me to coach? Or do you want me to fix? It does two things. One, it tells me as the leader which set of ears to put on. Sometimes it's not a fix. Sometimes I just need you to listen. If I can get this out of my head, does it sound crazy? Other times it's, hey, you know what? I need some coaching on this. I've tried these things in your experience, oh, wise one. Right? What have you seen that's worked and equally as important not work so I don't step in those same holes and break my ankle? And then finally, it's, look, I've tried everything that I know how to do. Just tell me what I need to go do. Now, the second thing that it does when you ask that question is, quite frankly, it tells that person that this time is all about you, not me. I'm here as a servant to help you. So again, do you want me to listen? Do you want me to coach? Do you want me to fix? Game changer as a leader. Hmm. Hmm. Do you want me to coach? Do you want, do you want me, me to listen? listen? Do you want me to coach or do you want me to fix? Do you want me to fix? Um, I would say, listener friends, if anyone is interested in digging more into the science, or the framework um, around that. I, the closest thing, RJ, that I've found that's gotten to that is The Coaching Habit, um, mm -hmm. which is an, ex an excellent, excellent, excellent book. And it it's the same, wait, yeah, The Coaching Habit. And then he's got The Advice Monster, right? So I think that's his new one, The Advice something about that. Um, okay. So here's, I'm looking at the clock. So we've got eight minutes before our final two questions. I want to bring it back to the book and also the root cause problems. Um, I'm, I'm looking at metrics and, and the business case, and I'm a little bit sad about that one. However, maybe we can squeeze in an, or do you have a hard stop? Are we? What's I your, do, yes. Okay. So there are three types of problems, friends. There are technology problems. There are process problems and there are human problems, process problems. There's, there's a bunch of principles that are, that it, are really important when you're looking at and addressing process problems. And the first one is that value flows at the pull of the client. And when I look at and think of sales processes, just as one example, um, these are not processes that are designed for the sellers or for the clients. They are designed for the company to bring in a certain amount of revenue at a certain time. And so when like just right off the bat in breach of the principles of process, but mo that, that isn't even the hardest one. The third are the human problems. And it is so, it's so much easier to buy a piece of technology when you have, when you think you have a problem. So much easier than dealing with the process where there's generally a lack of, of a skill gap in most cases and, and work, you know, whatever. That, then it but that's is, also why we have shiny tool syndrome because people want to try and bring in every tool. And just because it works somewhere else does not mean it's going to work for you. And most times I've seen it actually creates more problems yeah. and confusion yeah. and lack of adoption yeah. than if you stayed with a small tool set. Yeah. So understanding this a little bit deeper, friends, means you could probably do some damage on your retention numbers and upselling of your client base because or as sellers, right? Understanding that this is this is how the human brain works. And when you're talking around your tool, which is what Charles Mulbauer and I cover in our episode together, right? T learning how to talk around the tech, you start to understand the people in the process implications. Now that's it. 
the irony, the universal irony of that, all those facts, right? Specifically that it's easier to feel busy and address a, a, you know, feel like you're fixing something when you buy a piece of tech than it is to dig into the human problems or the human opportunities. And the other thing, RJ, that jumped out at me at your book, with your book, really aligned with what I have learned to be true, which is the most important thing while selling an enterprise deal is the buying team. The most important thing when putting together a, a process design or any kind of project of any kind is team selection, including the role of the naive questioner, right? So bringing in someone that Which doesn't know much shit needed. from shit. <laughs> much sit, needed. Give them a damn seat at the table. Look at things with a different set of lenses, right? <laughs> yeah. And so like, but, but again, like we, we have this, we, there's a lot of stigma around. So anyway, but including the naive questioner. And then I read your book that talked about the different roles on a sales enablement team. And I was blown away because not only do we so rarely see the human aspect of things or the team selection and the team design. I mean, even down the, Roderick, you've talked about this, the succession planning for, you know, and the last conversation we had, we were talking about rotating people for a short period of time to give them experiences with learning the different aspects of the, um, of the, what their peers were doing or what their team was doing on the sales enablement front, both so that they could have a richer understanding of what, what happens and what goes down, but also so you don't <laughs> get stuck with having to be the one to swoop in when, when one of these people on your team is, you know, there's an emergency or something. And so anyway, absolutely. I've been in that situation. Can you, I, had you to run, I had to run a boot camp because I made the mistake of not having my team cross-trained on the multiple programs. My um, facilitator had an appendectomy the Saturday before the start of a boot camp on Monday. Guess who got to run the boot camp? Me. Now, fortunately, I'd run one or two, but it had been a while, right? And that took the entire weekend for me to kind of bone up on the flow and all those things. I thought it went okay. It probably could have gone better, but it went okay. But our sellers didn't deserve okay. So what I've started doing now is making sure that Everyone on the team, unless they are in a pure analytics role, is, is being cross-trained to run each of the programs, whether it's the onboarding, it's discovering qualification, it's objection handling. Everybody should be able to step in as an integral piece and a replacement for the individual that's running that program. And you were saying something earlier about succession planning. You said three. I think there's actually six components that come into really building world-class program. The first is, yeah, no, not the piece. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll get to the piece. Okay. I'm thinking about the, the waterfall and I look at it, it starts with talent assessment and acquisition first and foremost, mm -hmm. getting the right IEP in place. Then it's the role specific onboarding because what's too technical or deep from one is not technical enough for another. Then when you go into your continuing education, it's about proficiency and it's also about business acumen at a, at a role level. Surface for BDRs, SDRs, deep for AEs, deep and wide for CSM, super deep for SEs, right? And then across the board for leaders. The next step is a, and we talked about this earlier, it's yeah. about getting a coaching and a reinforcement. And we leave that piece out, not just coaching, but a coaching and reinforcement program in place for our leaders. The next piece is then around measurements. And I'm not talking about smiley sheets and butts and seats. Oh, we got all fives and we trained 750,000 people. That and seven bucks will get you a latte. I'm talking about true revenue impacting and not driving. To my sales enablement folks, we do not drive revenue. We impact and we influence it. Unless you carry a bag, please stop saying that we drive revenue because we do not. The next piece is then succession planning. We talked about this earlier. That kind of high potential program to make sure that we are moving folks into roles, ones that are a fit instead of trying to shoehorn them in. Not every rock star salesperson wants to be a sales leader. They may want to come onto my team. They want to. They may want to go into, you know, an HR function, or they may want to go into another piece of the business. Don't pigeonhole people just because they've been successful in one role. Give them an opportunity to see what the other roles are and how they play into the overall sum of all parts, and then allow them to move that direction. Certainly, as the business, we have to make sure that we're covering the needs of the business, 
But you put someone into a, a role that you shoehorning them, and that is the first step to attrition, and they're going to walk out of the front door. Hmm. And it's also morally detestable after having my Indeed. With Aspireship, RJ, the CEO of Aspireship, Corey Cossack, he and I talked about how like the entire system of hiring is is flawed in that we look we are looking for lookalikes, right? And if a person does not check all of these boxes, then we won't even look at them. And it is so pervasive and so wrong. I mean, and so there's that. And also I'm like morally opposed to teaching someone a piece of doing the job. Like for example, if you're an AE and you're in a model where SDRs are opening up opportunities, but you, I have not taught you how to open up opportunities at an enterprise level, right? White glove style. Then mm -hmm. have I really taught you how to be an enterprise AE? And nope, so I've set you up for failure. Exactly. And so for everyone, listeners, RJ breaks down the roles on the um, on the sales enablement team as they should be in a flawless way. I've never seen it broken down like this. And it goes into great detail about the different, and I would look at it even from an alternate perspective, which is these are the core competencies Yeah, that, that, that was I the would goal. be, that I would be looking to, to nail, right. If I yeah. were, um, pursuing, a, a you know, career growth or looking to bring more value. Mm -hmm. to all of your clients, internal, external, across the board, and it keep increasing that. And so anyway, so buy the book, buy the book, buy the book. <laughs> Cannot say that enough. The, the link will be in the Thanks show so notes. And then what else? There was one other thing that you just said that I wanted to, oh, I'm going to go back and listen to this. RJ, we're, we're going to, we may have to come on and talk about this more. Um, okay. Uh, oh, oh, oh sales enablement friends, please, 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 please. Oh, and sales bosses please more business acumen. That is the first thing that I teach for the field. Absolutely. The first thing, if you cannot have a business conversation with your prospects, like you've got a, you got a, you got a rough go of it. Same thing with the markets, same thing with the markets. We go into the, the market, the need for market acumen on the Charles episode. If for anyone that wants more detail there, it is a life-changing way to sell. And it is very difficult to empower the field where things that you yourself do not know. And so sales bosses, that are maybe a little bit uncomfortable with the numbers of the business or are not, have never been asked to do a, uh, the PL for their department or, oh, in my comp plan, I'm only looking. I would start with just digging in, right? It's one thing to say, oh shit, okay, I need to do this. And now it's like, okay, now what, what do I actually do? Start by looking at the numbers of the business. It is very difficult to drive effectiveness and efficiency without understanding the implications of cost, right? And there were two forms of reducing cost. There is cost cutting. That's what most people know and think of, right? Just slashing. The second is born from innovation. And that is driving efficiency and effectiveness. And there is a, uh, it's going to be an uphill battle if we're trying to do so with the field and with the sales floor yeah. um, without understanding the basics. And so that would be where I would start. Can I add a third to that? Sure, There's sure. the cost of an action. Oh, the ROI. Yeah, the, do nothing. Yeah, not No, ROI versus COI, right? We all okay. look at ROI, the return on investment. What's the cost of an action of you sitting still? Because is there truly, to your point, is there truly a, a, a sitting still in, in business? No. You're either moving forward or you're moving behind your competition. You're never sitting still. So you've got to understand how to position that accurately and where to go with it from there. So Roger, I know you. So now I know you didn't read my sales talker thing. There are ROI. <laughs> most people think about ROI as an A versus B scenario. That is not accurate. ROI is an A versus B, C, or D. D generally stands for do nothing. So what is the yep. cost to do nothing? Cost and that of is an action. That is the greatest cost and the most fun to calculate both as a seller, friends. And as and a seller, that's what you're fighting against most of the time. Yeah, that's is status. We'll, we'll call it status quo, but you're fighting against the cost of an action. And if you don't know how to position against that, it's going to be very difficult to close a lot of deals. Hmm. Well said. Uh, I agree. And that's, that's where I learned how to calculate the cost of an action. And so I'm going to, listeners, there will be a link to um, somewhere where I wrote this answer, I think it was a sales hacker. So you could see like the breakdown of how I did this and I learned it while selling so that I can help my buying team to understand the cost of an action and also make the business case when I was not there to help them do so. Okay. R RJ, what is the most uncomfortable conversation that you've ever had to have in a revenue context? <laughs> um, the, the most uncomfortable conversations come around 
why do my people need to do this? I need them focused on revenue generating and I need them out there closing deals. And I had a sales leader that just could not get his arms around enablement. He was still focused on the old school training, right? And so what I said was, if we don't get these folks on in a timely manner, Mm -hmm. how do we accelerate speed to revenue that you're asking for? How do we remove the selling obstacles? How do we even know what those are if we don't get feedback from your people? Okay, let's start there. Mm -hmm. The second, we were talking about continuing education. If we don't do that, then it's the equivalent of sending your sellers out to war with a plastic spoon. I talk to my peers, even peers that are competitors of the companies I work at, to find out. And I ask a simple question, why do we lose to you guys? And look, the one thing I love about enablement is we are so transparent. We put logos on the shelf and go, okay, let's just talk about what's really going on. And when we find this out, I come back and go, this is why we lose. You may think this is it, but I'm telling you from the people that are enabling other people of how to sell against us, this is why we lose. It's It's not difficult. We make it far more difficult. The the last piece that that I want to say is this. To our enablement folks, to our product, to anyone that is customer facing, let's put it that way, and I'll call it field customer facing. One thing, and we talked about this earlier. If you are not focused and you have not in depth mapped out your buyer's journey and then come a level down to how the buyer's journey then ties to your sales methodology and how that ties to your selling motions, and then ultimately how that ties to all of the assets and content that come from marketing and product marketing, and at the baseline level, all of the enablement activities, then what you're doing is trying to shoehorn your buyer into your selling motions instead of understanding where you fit into the buyer's journey. It should all start and end with the buyer's journey because if you don't do that, you're not going to have net new buyers and you're also going to have people that will attrit out of the back door. The final, final piece is this. Stop teaching people how to sell and start teaching people how to help. Because when you teach them how to sell, and what I've seen over the years is we focus on the bits, bytes, and bots of what we do and how we do it and how wonderful we are. And I don't mean I, my current company. I'm just talking broadly. Yeah, we focus on the features in, and the product, in, and we think that they're going to sell themselves. Yeah. And instead, if you get away from the bits, bytes, and bots, and you focus on, if you're going to sell, there's only one thing that I believe you should be selling. What is the experience that that prospect or customer can only receive by partnering with you and your company? That's what you should be selling. Not products, not solutions, not platforms. Sell the experience that they will get by working with you and with your company. Stop selling, start helping. Everything changes when you do that. And again, communication is not just about me telling you. And and to my enablement people, I'll say it again. Most believe that enablement is about the answers that we give to problems. I believe that it's the questions that you ask to understand the why behind the problems, not just the what. Mm. Mm. Once again, all important things while selling. Uh, well, and well said. Okay, so RJ, Thank what's you. one piece of advice to our listeners, the experienced tech seller, about uncomfortable conversations? Um. Uncomfortable conversations come, one, because either you're not prepared and you haven't thought through all the angles of this, or because you're not asking the right questions and you're trying to ask a question to fill your quota and put a a logo up on the wall. Mm -hmm. As buyers, we all know. That's why no one wants to go to car lots. That's why Netflix exists and we don't have to go out to Blockbuster. It's because we need a partner that's going to help us. Things become less comfortable when you are prepared and you approach it from the perspective of the buyer, as opposed to you being the seller. Other times that they happen is because people are afraid of three words. And I think these are the three most powerful words on the planet besides I love you. Ready for this, Amy? Yes. I don't know. People are terrified by those words, but there's an enormous amount of credibility in it. You're not trying to fluff. You're not trying to BS me. You're saying, I don't know but I will go and find out the answer and I promise that I will circle back. There it is. The other reason that we have uncomfortable conversations is that last piece, lack of timely follow-up. If you say you're going to do something, do it in the time frame that you promised that prospect. I've got to go get an answer for that. I will get back to you by Tuesday noon PST. And you know what? 
get it to him at 1145 instead of yeah under promise over deliver a hundred percent and also our brains are we naturally think that we underestimate the length of time so whatever that first like the date that jumps to your brain that that you want to promise go ahead and add 24 to 48 hours to it trust me it's life-changing and then rj to what you said which is beautiful about separating the business problem or um uh fixing in the Marcus Chan episode, we talk about the contracting process and how it started as something that was, uh, I was asked to do a training for the reps on contracting. So we go deep on how to pivot being asked from to do a training into identify or like asking questions, finding the root cause problem, and then addressing it. So for sales enablement friends, that Marcus Chan episode gives a, a solid breakdown. Roderick, I love you. I love and you. love right back at you. I love you. Thank you for making time with us or for us today. Your book is beautiful. Listeners, Thank like you. a must listen. Um, also, sales leaders, sales leaders, sales bosses. This is the book that you want to buy in bulk for your sales enablement team and or for your frontline managers because there is so much value on both ends. This is a bulk order book. I mean... That's a pretty solid understatement. So I'm just going to leave that right there. Listeners, or RJ, you're the best. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, listeners, thank you for staying around for the remainder of the conversation. It means the world. Truth, love, and joy, friends, and happy selling. Bye. Take care. Man, that was heavy, but necessary, you know, important, important stuff being thrown around. Virtues that we as humans can build a sturdy foundation on. I heard words like trust. I heard words like action. I heard words like consistency. And uh, I think this is important, but I, I also live in the real world, right? Where I trust that the action Amy didn't take was to consistently feed the dog or file her legal disclaimer paperwork from all the unnecessary risks she takes on a weekly basis. Karen is gonna be pissed. Karen! All right, friends. The only way this works as a hotline is if we find some people to come play. Anybody who's interested or brave enough or desperate enough, because let's be serious, that's where it's at. Everything you need to know is in the show notes. Yeah, call, absolutely. Call in. Don't have enough to do? You want a couple of books to read? Maybe we can boss you around for a couple hours? Yeah, please. By all means, call. If you like what you're hearing or are excited for this shit show and where it's going to go, definitely follow us on whatever podcast device is your preference, even though I, I seriously have a hard time identifying with anything non-Spotify, but you know, I guess I'll come to terms with that. If you find any value in things that we're talking about, do tell a friend. I consider that the highest honor. Of course, there's always the public review of any kind, although part of me thinks that I should not ask that until we're out of beta. Just a note for sponsors from Karen and Pete down in Legal, we are anxious to receive your call. And if you are looking to help or join the cause or create change in a positive way, Please reach out to anyone but me because I have enough to do. And Amy will definitely be interested in taking your money to help more people, which is what we do here. You know, stuff, legal stuff. You know, it's pretty crazy. I still can't believe people listen to shit I say. Yeah, like there, there's certainly a kernel of truth somewhere in there, but you know, it's, it's just, it's wrapped up in a story. Order the dog food, Amy. Order it. Chewy.com. Possible sponsor. Lola, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, baby. I love you. Here, take some pets. Come come sit up on my lap. I don't know about you listeners, but I enjoy my podcast on Stitcher. I mean, I don't have a premium account because I'm holding out for sponsorship. Hey, Stitcher, looking at you. Also, I believe we mentioned Chewy, so there will be a link to the, them in the show notes, even though we are not sponsored by them, and I bought my dog food at Target this week because it was on sale and I saved on shipping. All right, friends. Thank you for listening to the conversation. 
For more ridiculousness, check out the extended cut of the outro. And that's a wrap. I can't. I can't. I can't. So this is Pete, your disclaimer specialist, coming to you at the super secret disclaimer portion of the show because this is a pod about transparency and difficult conversations. And with everyone being so open and honest, um, I must be. So here goes. Um, as the outroer to the outroe, I'm sorry. I apologize. You know, I, I misled you intentionally. As your attorney, I must confess that I am not a fucking attorney. Um, I have not passed the bar exam in the state in which I live. I uh, have never represented anyone well in anything, let alone in a court of law. Um, but again, these are difficult conversations that we're, Amy's having with, with her guests, and, and I lied. And I should tell you that. I should be open and honest because, you know, we have been. So we can all be better. We can all do better together. And now I'm just rambling at this point. It's just, who cares? It's an outro, right? Like, this is just going to fade into blackness like the Mars rover, maybe a little bit less sad. That was fucking sad. Oh, let's not be that sad. Come on, guys. We can do better.